In a career that has spanned six decades, today's guest has countless credits on and off Broadway and at many of this country's major regional theaters. Her most recent work includes Signature Theater Company's revival of The Trip to Bountiful, Playwrights Horizons After the Revolution, and The Tempest at Steppenwolf Theater Company. And she was acclaimed for her performances in the Steppenwolf productions of The Grapes of Wrath and Buried Child in both Chicago and New York. She is currently playing the role of Alcandra in Tony Kushner's adaptation of Cornet's The Illusion at Signature. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm delighted to spend time talking with an old friend, Lois Smith. And so am I delighted to talk to you, Howard. The first and most obvious question about the illusion is that you are playing a role that was originally written by Cornet and adapted by Tony as a man. That's right. And it was a surprise to me when I got the call from Signature saying, we want you to be in The Illusion and we want you to play Alcandra. I did not know the play at that point, so I read the play and said, oh, (laughs) in a certain way, it's a non-subject as it turns out. There's been nothing about, essentially nothing about the fact that it was written as a man. I mean, occasionally it's brought up or Tony has mentioned it. I remember one little tiny bit of business and – He said, oh, well, that might be interesting since uh, Alcandre is a woman now. It was somebody – another character's businessman. But it is interesting. Having worked on an early production of the play myself um, 20 years ago, when the role is played by a man and you have a story about another man looking for his missing son, that the dynamic is an entirely male dynamic. The searcher – the lost, and the one who may do the finding. It was male. When you introduce a female without comment into that group, something different happens. And was that something that was explored at all or was just natural because you're a woman? There certainly are times when I have been aware of it and aware of the difference. Uh, One thing is the story of the women in the illusions deals with the position of a woman being uh, her father deciding who she marries, what becomes of her, the necessity to make extreme choices if that's not going to happen. And as every night, I listen to the play from beginning to end since I'm on stage throughout all of the scenes. I'm very aware of that. It's certainly in my mind and I think it might well or not be in the audience's mind, but it just becomes a fact Hmm. in this production that the woman's voice is, it's not exclusively a male-driven story. No, again, the text didn't have to be altered. It was just the thought that a woman could play it. You played another role, typically played by a man, when Tina Landau directed The Tempest. Yes, indeed, I played Um, Lord Gonzalo. Tina had in mind to have some cross-gender casting, and as it turned out, the other woman, she intended to be one of the comics, that didn't happen. So it wasn't, I was the only one in a way. I mean, there was a, the Ariel character had several Ariel helpers, one of whom was a woman, but then that's often true, I think, in different productions. So I was one of the nobles. Part of the re- of Tina's reasoning, it being a Steppenwolf production and Frank Galati playing Prospero, she was thinking, interested in having the Steppenwolf ensemble surrounding Frank 
in various ways which were meaningful to us. And I being the old retainer uh, <laughs> to whom Franks Prospero is uh, touched to see. And it was touching. It was. Mm. <laughs> I hadn't realized you were doing the show until I saw a press release. You had to leave the production a little early. And I saw that you were being replaced by Mike Nussbaum, <laughs> yes. who's a terrific actor. Yes, but I indeed. just thought, good Lord, what, what part <laughs> What's is going she playing? On here? I mean, I it's said, certainly I said, the only time you've probably been replaced by Mike Nussbaum. Yes, I said to Mike, if you need some tips on playing an old man, I'd be happy to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so did you play it as an old man or did you play oh, it? Oh, yes. In that case, oh, in that case uh, I was one of the four nobles whose scenes through the, you know, our, as we traverse the sands of the island and um, – I'm the most sympathetic of them. These are the villains, in a way. We were all dressed in beautifully vivid, colored, jewel-colored suits of, I guess it was probably Edwardian period. I may not be quite right about that. Mm -hmm. But um, otherwise, there was very little. It concerned me. I talked to Tina ahead of time and during the time, and she said, no, no, you need nothing. You'll have your suit on. It'll be fine. But I thought, hmm, not so sure about that. So I talked her into sideburns. Huh. They were not interested in in. Uh, I, I said it seems to me face hair might be a little bit of, of interest. Uh, because so I, I didn't have a beard, I didn't have a mustache, but I did have some pretty little sideburns. Because we're certainly used to seeing women playing men within the plots of Shakespeare. Oh yes, but but as you say, this it, wasn't the case. It's totally different reason. Hmm. Yes, yes. Hmm. Fascinating. Coming back to the illusion, um, you said that there were conversations with Tony. Um, I think many people know Tony to be an inveterate rewriter oh, of yes. his work. And I mentioned that I had worked on a production of this 20 years ago. Um, was Tony around making adjustments to this? Tony was around very little during our time in the rehearsal room because mm-hmm. he was still madly rewriting, I think, and working with Intelligent Homosexuals Guide, which was not yet open. Mm-hmm. So – to our sorrow, we didn't have his attention, which I was quite sure we wouldn't have for those first weeks. Hmm. He was with us occasionally, but only really sort of full-time with us about the time we moved into the theater. And then very much, not only that, there were some rehearsals with him in the in the um, rehearsal room, but all through a long tech period and preview period with rehearsals, it was not, as is his wont, as I understand, rewriting. There was one small section of a scene, not a scene of mine, which he did actually rewrite. Hmm. Otherwise, this text remains what it was when he wrote it, I guess, around 20 years ago. Hmm. And was there any discussion it's a somewhat atypical piece oh, for I him, so. for people who know his original works, not his adaptations, about what had drawn him to the story and – in fact, what drew you to the story? Well, he told us I didn't know where it came from and that he was beginning work on Angels in America and uh, Brian Kulik asked him to do this adaptation and paid him for it, which was important at the time. Yep. And that's uh, how it happened. And the appeal for you when you did read this Oh, script. the appeal, first of all, there are several. Tony Kushner, the signature theater with whom I have a loving and a happy relationship. Those certainly were the – and then when I read it, I thought, oh, how interesting. I was interested whether Michael Mayer, who was directing, and Tony had anything in mind about making it a woman, 
other than it just occurred to them to do this. I believe that Tony came to see, after the revolution, Amy Herzog's play at Playwrights, and David Margulies and I were both in it, and I think he decided, oh, oh, isn't that a good idea to have Lois and David play Alcandra and Predamont, which is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I started to think about it, a part which I had no previous in, um, experience with, and uh, I was concerned, is there, what do they have in mind? And when I talked to both Tony and Michael, there was nothing, I, I thought, Androgyny doesn't seem to me to the point here, to myself, as I began thinking about the part, nor was that anything they had in mind. Michael talked about Susan Hilfert, wonderful Susan Hilferty, who did the costumes. One of the, this isn't a parenthesis, but one of the wonderful things about this production is the beautiful team of designers who have worked together with each other, Michael Mayer, and how wonderful they are. I wish I could sit out and see the production because uh, the set design. Uh, well, Christine Jones, and Christine Jones, and Kevin Adams, Kevin Adams the is doing the lights. Bray Poor is doing the sound. Susan's the costume. It is just wonderful. It's such a treat. As an actor, you don't get to see a lot of that. You know, there is always a time constraint, and tech is when they come to our rehearsals to some extent, of course, and we meet them ahead of time. But their work, which is so exciting. And it's, in this case, so beautiful and such a collaborative effort. Well, since you bring it up, I know there are actors for whom getting into costume has a profound effect on their performance, that it takes them from where they are in the rehearsal room to then another level when they actually wear the clothes. Is that true for you? Yes, I think it really is always true and it's certainly true in this one. I mean I had started having conversations with Susan – as soon as we met on the show and there were things that interested and concerned me and her design was very wonderful and there's another collaborator, Tom Watson, whom I hadn't worked with before, did the wigs in the show and uh, that also was very exciting and very transforming. Mm-hmm. So the uh, – I was always concerned about how she looked. We had a wonderful dramaturg who had prepared a lot of material. So there was – a certain amount of attention I had a chance to read about magic in the 17th century, the magicians at the time, what was going on in uh, – uh, one of the things that struck my mind in some of the stuff I read said that many people assumed that uh, science and magical thinking that w- were opposite courses and that this was not true at hmm. this time in history and perhaps – Always. I mean, it's not something I know a lot about, but I was struck by the fact that they were not separate paths. But well, you, the, you the, saw the vestiges of alchemy, probably. It, yes, but I think even the thinking, it's perhaps the imaginative thinking and the thinking beyond what seems possible. I, I'm just conjecturing because it's not something I know a lot about. But that fact, as I read the research about it, struck me. Hmm. Fascinating. This is certainly not a play about the uh, relationship of of science and magic, but it's still an ingredient in what's going on. No, we're very carefully talking around some of what the play is truly about. Indeed, yes. Never to spoil it for those who haven't seen (laughs) it. That's right. Let's jump back. Born in Topeka, Kansas, but really raised in Seattle. 
Yes, I was um, uh, 10 when my family moved to Seattle. Yes. Your dad was a classics professor? No, no, no my no, husband was a your classics husband, I'm professor. Sorry. No, my father worked for the telephone company. and hmm. um, <laughs> but, Not in at all the same sense, but as in Tennessee Williams' uh, glass menagerie father, he was perhaps in love with long distance. He really wanted to move to the West Coast. Hmm. He and my mother had taken some vacations. I'm the youngest of six children, and... He fell in love with the West Coast and began to maneuver to be transferred, which he finally was. There was one Hmm. point, I think, I lived for two years in St. Joseph, Missouri, between Topeka and Seattle. And I remember there was one moment when we almost moved to San Francisco, and that didn't happen. And then I think the next year we moved to Seattle. So where did theater come into this? Because I read you started doing plays young. It was my father, indeed. My father, who had no... uh, uh, Something I'll never know the answer to when I was – before I was born, I'm sure. My father, who worked for the telephone company and was not a college graduate, took night courses in acting and directing. Where that came from, I really don't know. But what he wanted it for, what he did with it, was to direct plays in church. He was a – he was a sort of pillar of the church, a Protestant church in Topeka. And wherever we lived – very slowly, the sort of front of the church would be adapted a bit, and he put plays on. From the time I was tiny, I would go with him and learn all the lines. If there was something for me, I would do it. They were either biblical plays or somehow religious or moral plays. It hmm. wasn't like, you know, comedies in the church basement, though that happened also, but that had nothing to But this is clearly where it started. With hmm. my beloved father, I went to rehearsals and was in plays. So when you went to college, University of Washington, you went for a degree in theater? I was there for a bit over two years. I didn't have a degree, no. Okay. Yes, but I went because of the theater. They had a remarkable theater department at that time, long before the current, you know, um, conservatory programs. Hmm. So why no degree? I left and came to New York. Hmm. (laughs) So what was that experience with two years of college under your belt? moving to New York to be an actor because it, it obviously went pretty well for you because you had a Broadway role I did. My fast. first job was a play on Broadway in a featured part. It was amazingly fortunate. Opposite Melvin Douglas. That's right. In Time Out for Ginger. That's right. <laughs> not, the play not remembered, <laughs> Melvin Douglas, certainly. How did that come about? so quickly? Were you just going to auditions or had you been studying? Uh, uh, I Yes, I was going to auditions. I, there were a few uh, remarkable kind things. I uh, had been sent a script of a writing professor had written a play that he was sending to Van Druten, whom he had gotten to know when Van Druten was in Seattle this at the John University. Van John Van yeah. Druten. So uh, this man who was not my teacher, but he was somebody I knew and was the teacher of many friends of mine, said, I'll, I'll give you my play to deliver to Van Druten. I'm going to to uh, send it to him. Hmm. Wonderful. So my husband and I drove across very slowly across the country in a heat wave, got to New York, uh, got sort of settled down for a moment, and I called his office and they said, he's out of town at, uh, you know, for the rest of the weekend, but thank you so much. Uh, Mr. Redford has rewritten the play and sent the rewrite, so we don't need your and uh, that was that. Hmm. Aha, this is one of the loveliest stories I know, Howard. My husband and I were staying in a little room where we stayed for, I think, a month. My husband was about to go to Harvard at the end of the summer to start a PhD 
program there. And I was, you know, I'd gotten a job sorting checks at the bank all Mm -hmm. night and we were, you know, and I was going to make rounds. And I got this place where nobody knew where we were, really, basically, except my mother. John Bedruton came back to his office, heard that I had called, went to enormous lengths, calling his friend in Seattle, who didn't know where we were, who didn't know my mother, but got in touch with her, who knew our address. We had no telephone. And he sent me a telegram saying, I'm so sorry, please call and make an appointment. Isn't that just remarkable? It's just, it still amazes me. And uh, I went to meet him. I remember buying a little cotton dress the Hmm. day before I went. It was a very hot summer. Uh, We... He took me to lunch. We argued about my friend's play. <laughs> and um, as we walked away, he offered me a couple of um, addresses and people he would call agents. Hmm. And this continued. He continued to tell me he'd spoken to so-and-so. Huh. One of them was one of the agents at – I think it was MCA at the time. They had you know, gone through many – one of the large agencies. And that's how I got time out for Ginger. I uh, They called in I think every – there were three young teenage girls in this play. And uh, I think, you know, they just sort of put out a net. I had an audition. I knew it went well. And in the room was a sort of horseshoe of people including Melvin Douglas and the director and one of the producers, Shepard Traub. And, and uh, I knew it had gone well. And when the reading was over, one of them said to me, and what have you done? And I said, nothing. That's what's wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> and they hired you and anyway. And they did. <laughs> How amazing. Yes, it, How amazing. Yeah, it was so so lucky. And it was a you know a featured part with a teenager. They could afford to do that and they did. It hmm. was really nice. Now, because I don't know where this fell in the development of your career, you ultimately became a member of the Actors Studio, but you took some private lessons with Strasberg? Yes. I think um, I had a part in East of Eden. The, uh, I was sent to, again, audition with the part that I think, again, they were seeing lots and lots of young actresses. And I think Julie Harris was already cast to play Abra. And um, I got the part of the barmaid, a beautiful scene early in East of Eden. And I think Kazan had said, why don't you take classes with Strasbourg? Hmm. And I did. Actually, not very long Hmm. And I auditioned for the actor's studio. So East of Eden came first and then through Kazan, you well, got it to Strasbourg in the studio. Of, yes. Hmm. And I auditioned for the studio once – shortly after I came to New York with actually somebody from the University of Washington, a, a classmate there. Hmm. Neither one of us got in. And then I auditioned again later uh, and I did get a, a final audition and then got in. That was – that had to be after uh, – East of Eden, but before hmm. that, I did take classes with Strasbourg. Now, I normally don't ask a lot about film, but but I have to ask about East of Eden. It certainly was a major film in its day. In many ways, its reputation has only grown because of the very few films that James Dean did. Yes, so it's all part of that legend. Um, at the time, it was, I assume, just a job. It was a very special job, of course, mm-hmm. um, and you, I was so fortunate. You know, within within two years after I came to New York, my first job was Time Out for Ginger, which I got quite promptly, and then I 
I began to get, there was lots and lots of television in New York then, television drama. And uh, I got a, the first one I did was live. Hmm. Live, I did several live television. And then East of Eden, uh, a lovely movie, a small part, but a beautiful one. So within two years, I had significant work on stage, television, and film. What a lucky person, huh? So that, and right away, I had begun in all of those medium, which makes a huge difference. If I remember correctly, even in your television drama, did you do a Strindberg on television? Yes, I did Miss Julie on Play of the Week on public television. So in oh, that was public television. So yes, I mean, yes. Okay, but still, even in East, those I days, did, I did um, Ibsen, Master Builder, hmm. and, and uh, then Miss Julie. So remarkable in days when. Plays like that would be done That's right. on television. That's right. So that, and they wanted stage actors, of course. And presumably that television work was happening here in New York. In New York, absolutely. So it's back when television yes. and theater was much more closely linked Very, as opposed to now where we see film and television more closely absolutely, linked. Absolutely, yes. Very interesting. Very different. Hmm. Now, the stage work certainly – continued, um, some more successful than others. Uh, one of the shorter runs, a play called The Wisteria Trees, uh, which I think was a revival at that point. But yes. Helen Hayes, Will Gear, Cliff Robertson, and Walter Matthau yes. among your co-stars in, in, again, one of your earlier stage roles. Yes, yes. How remarkable. Isn't that, though? Yes, indeed. It, really. Remarkable. What was it like to be around Helen Hayes in well, her Well, I did heyday? two things with Helen Hayes. I did The Wisteria Trees. And uh, um, there had been a, a sort of Helen Hayes festival on one of the Cape theaters. I think it was Falmouth Playhouse. And this was one of the things that was done there. And so I did it there. And then later at the, you know, the New York City Center used to have a drama, a short drama season. Yeah. And so it was also done there with a slightly different cast. Hmm. And then I also did a Glass Menagerie with Helen Hayes hmm. uh, at the... Uh, also at City Center. Also at City Center, yes. Wow. So yeah. again, what... What was the experience of working with her? I've heard she was kind of tough. I didn't find her tough. One of the things I remember about in Wisteria Trees, which was first, I remember one day being on at the city center. It was the second production of it for me, and they were both brief. In the last part, in the cherry orchard, which it's based on, is when she's saying goodbye to the house, you know, and it's leaving at the at the last act. And one day on stage... There was this sense of power. It was almost like an electric current. And I just, it felt wham. And I thought, oh my goodness. I see why this woman has been for many years called the, you know, the first lady, etc. It was, uh, of course, it was very late in her career. Uh, but I'd read something about her early years. And, hmm. and in, in my experience in, with her in the, uh, in the Glass Menagerie, was not so much about her as about my sense of myself in the early rehearsals. I thought, I feel like I'm, I must have been intimidated, I guess, because it was Helen Hayes, that's quite possible. Uh, and I remember thinking, what am I doing? I'm skirting around the edges of the set. I'm hiding. I'm avoiding the center of this character. And it was a turning point in myself in learning that I was playing her fear, her reluctance, rather than herself. Hmm. And although that wasn't exactly related to Miss Hayes, it was uh, part of being on stage with her. Hmm. We talk about the fact that 
you hadn't done a lot when you got your first role. You hadn't done anything professionally. That professionally, was the point. And yes. that you know you took classes. You had gone to school for a couple of years. I'm wondering how much in those early years directors influenced your craft because you worked with some really impressive people. In just the space of perhaps a year, you did Orpheus Descending directed by Harold Clerman and you did a play, Edwin Booth, starring and directed by Jose Ferrer. Yes. So were these people from whom you were learning craft? Oh, I'm sure, yes. My goodness. Directors certainly, to be directed in a way is to be taught sometimes Mm -hmm. for better or worse. I was very fortunate as a young actress to be working in fine casts with, I think I I was able to set a very high standard early on for what what it ought to be like. I was very fortunate, yes. Hmm. So I'm curious because with things like the work at City Center and Broadway and the early days of television, you spent, it looks like a season or two in Philadelphia at the Theater of the Living Arts. I and did. I assume this was when Andre Gregory was yes, running that Yes, it was. Company. It was, yes. That was moving towards the avant-garde. Oh, indeed. With Andre Gregory. <laughs> so how does... It was um, when... All, excuse me. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, please. I, I was just going to say, how do you go from conventional work, let's say, which surely was most of the work you'd been doing up to that time, to to the kind of work Andre Gregory was doing? Well, Andre was founding a theater, which was uh, certainly had some um, avant-garde aspects and choices, but mostly it was f- uh, five plays a season, and they were, you know, they included Tiger at the Gates, uh, a couple of Chekhovs, some Moliere. I mean, it was a it was a really uh, regional theater menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, we did a Rochelle Owens. Uh, we, you know, it was a a, a mixture, and because it Saul was, Bellows, the last analysis. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a wonderful mixture. Um, I was living in Philadelphia at the time, though. That's though. Actually, I got this job through Andre in the Actors Studio and being, you know, a New York actor. Hmm. But my husband was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, so. I lived there. So you, you, you went where the work was while you were there. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Yes. And certainly at a time in Philadelphia where there wasn't an existing regional It was just company. the time when this very same thing was happening all over the country. I remember at the time the stories one would hear about the struggles with newly formed companies, with the board, with the community. With, and they, it's like they were all the same story in a different – I mean they – Everybody was struggling with the best will in the world, but it was often very difficult. And you know, actors would come into a place that wasn't used to having a, a theater, and it was um, it was very exciting. Well, because the, the company meetings were wild. Well, because <laughs> there, there was no "this is how we've done it." That's because right. it simply hadn't been done. That's the right. model didn't exist. That's yet. right. It was really this the beginning of that spread of the regional theater movement. And when you say company meetings, was was it somewhat of a collective or was it still 
Andre Gregory's company and you were there to work there for a season? It was both. I mean, it, in a way, it's always both unless unless you have a leader who's a real autocrat. I don't – you know, it's uh, – there were a lot hmm. of outspoken people who – <laughs> who made them say we all made ourselves heard. Hmm. It was very exciting. We were, you know, coming together to do a w- wonderful seasons of, of uh, plays. Hmm. Now, I want to ask again in relation to film, since you had that opportunity with East of Eden so early and certainly you did film work, you seem to have not made the decision to – focus on getting film work. Was that just because of what was going on in your life? Was that because you really prioritized the stage? I was living in in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was certainly part of it. And then uh, um, in the late 50s, I had a young daughter and so I was raising a child and, and, uh, you know, I didn't do very many films. I'd done a lot more films Later, which right. again is, uh, you know, I've been very lucky as I've gotten older. Instead of getting less parts, I've gotten more. It's been really fun again, very lucky. Hmm. Since we're obviously not going to talk about every show you've done, I, I want to ask about a few. But let me ask you first. You um, – in one interview I read um, talked about having very much enjoyed the opportunity um, to do Chekhov and you did two Vanyas in your career. Yes. Um Seagull at the Guthrie, Cherry Orchard at Center Stage, and I, I and I did Vanya at the Taper, as play, well as at playing Theater Sonia of the with Arts. Harold Clerman directing. Yes, and then uh, I did uh, Ye- Ye- Elena at yep. the Theater of the Living Arts. What what appeals to you about? Oh, Chekhov? I've always loved Chekhov. When I was a student at uh, university, I I remember at that point. The Seagull was my favorite play in the world and I worked on Nina there and uh, never played Nina. I've done like, you know, classroom or workshop. But And then finally under Lucian Pintelia, that really remarkable Romanian director at the Guthrie, I played Arcadia, hmm. which was uh, a great treat. Uh, I was past Nina at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably almost every young actress wants to play Nina. Uh, yes, and- probably. And uh, Irene Lewis in, at the Center Stage in Baltimore had asked me what I wanted to do just at the time when I really knew that the th- – I often don't know the answer to that. It's embarrassing when people say, what would you really like to do? And I'll say, hmm, I don't know. But I knew I wanted to do um, – Ranovskaya in uh, Cherry Orchard. Hmm. And so I did it with Irene, which was, again, a wonderful, exciting production. I've always loved Chekhov. Hmm. Production I just want to ask about because it's one that I wish I'd had the opportunity to see. On Broadway in 1973, you were in um, Iceman Cometh. Oh, yes. James Earl Jones as Hickey. Playing Hickey, yes. Yes. Tell me me a little about that production. It was – you know, it's so – Long and vast, and <laughs> hello, Eugene again, it's Yes, again, it was really. It's very interesting. I suppose some of what I remember about it is just that the length. I think it was something like four and a half hours, and there was a while when we were doing two a day. Oh, it, I remember that on Sunday night, I would think, "Oh, this is impossible. You're just sort of falling apart," because it was so. Long and we were on. St- I wasn't on stage all the time. There were some characters who were always on stage. People used to go to sleep. We had systems to keep each other awake. You know, a lot of people. <laughs> can you imagine spending 
about four hours with your head partly on the table and the bar, and you're supposed to be alert when it comes to – you know, it was really hard. Okay. Well, what are the systems? I have to ask. <laughs> what do you do? Well, your, your table mate will notice if you – this didn't happen to me. I wasn't one of the sleepers on the table. I tables. just want to know the secrets. But, <laughs> I remember at one point we initiated a game – which was uh, – maybe I shouldn't tell this is a sort of actor's scene. You know, it's been almost 40 years. I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's OK. Well, a game called Pass the Penny and uh, if you had the penny, the job was to give it to somebody else. So you had to be – this was long into the runs but I really feel embarrassed saying this, Howard. You, it, you, you know, it means that you are – you find a way. You brush up against somebody. You know, you, but nobody knows that, that is, this is not something that you do anything about. Except that it, everybody has to sort of brighten up and. Pay but attention. you know, you shouldn't be embarrassed because what's interesting <laughs> is, you know, often, and I've certainly been part of asking these questions or hearing them answered. You know, people who do long runs, how do you keep it fresh every mm-hmm. night? Well, everybody often gives these very highbrow things about there's always something new and there's audience is always different and et cetera, et cetera. And, and <laughs> all else you fails know, past the penny. All <laughs> else fails, you make up a game. And and if indeed on a, on a work of that length, that's what it takes. You know, that's just a practical issue in the business. So I can't imagine it's going on in every production we see. <laughs> no, I think and not. indeed, I suspect maybe some actors will hear this and go, ooh, I'm going to remember that. <laughs> so perhaps we've, we've, we've brought it back. I do want to ask about one of your Broadway ventures, very short-lived, but it just struck me, the people involved – you were in a play called Stages, <laughs> yes. which was written by Stuart Ostro, yes. who was much better known as a producer That's of right. note yes. and directed by Richard Foreman. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Just – it lasted a night. Yes. But what was that experience? Because Stuart Ostro was known for producing mainstream, yes. um, successful Broadway fare, both before and after – and Richard Foreman, of course, would have been in his early days as, as a leader of the avant-garde. Absolutely. So how did this end up on Broadway? Uh, uh, I really don't know the answer. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. Jack Warden was – there was five separate plays. It was called Stages and based on the stages of, of uh, grieving or mourning or denial. Oh, it of, sounds more appealing by the minute. <laughs> <laughs> and each play was separate and mm-hmm. so that we played different characters in all of the plays. Mm-hmm. So it was quite challenging. <laughs> I laugh because it was really one of the craziest things I've ever been involved in. It was was enormous. The scenery was enormous. It moved a lot because there were five different plays. It was – I I remember in the theater just before previews, I remember looking up and seeing the stagehands lined up shoulder to shoulder. There were so many of them and that – they had to get to a certain stage at which things alter in the stage management, you know. And, oh, and the the night we had previews, I believe we had a week, maybe two, I've forgotten. But on the first night that we performed, it was not ready, you know. I mean, things simply didn't – and there was a sense partway through the evening where you could feel the audience smelled blood, <laughs> It was I've never I've never experienced anything like it. Mm-hmm. There would be a kind of like an animal. It, they became this animal of mockery. It was 
amazing. And because we were all playing, you know, we would be running upstairs, changing into the next play and the next costume, looking with each other and admit, wow, and going back onto this. It was a, it was a night of, I just, I, I can't even describe it. Well, the it. theater was certainly alive in a way. Perhaps it wasn't <laughs> always for you. <sighs> Very interesting. Jumping ahead and, and skipping over a bunch of things. In the early 80s, you took to writing a play. I did write a play. I had written a little bit, a very little bit, but, you know, over the years, sometimes stories or there were times when I kept a, a, a journal a little bit, nothing very regular. And I, re- But I was interested in it, and I remember the day, which I'm sure is the beginning. I had this something in my mind, and I was lying down on the couch, and I got to the point where I thought, Oh, yes, but I was very, like, sleepy, and I thought, okay, and I made myself get up and walk across the room and sit at the table and start to write it, and I know that's what it took. I, it's a very kind of familiar sense of 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 being there, but how hard it is. It's, I would say writing that it was a full-length play was the hardest thing I ever did, you know, hmm. creatively. It was really... It, it, it's maybe that's a silly thing to say because it's so different from what I do as an actor. That, you know, it's uh, but well, it's and it's long term. You know, it took a while yeah, to write a play because presumably you didn't just take time off to write a play. No, you were working no, 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 in I, between. Yeah, as you said to me before we started um, recording that it was workshopped. It never really got a big. Yeah, I had full scenes production. done here and there. Um, Steppenwolf did a reading of it. Um, it was. We staged part of it, I think, at the studio, at, at the Ensemble Studio Theater where I'm a member. I had, it had – somebody was interested in optioning it. I had a very good agent for a while who hmm. at first had said, no, no, I'm not – and then I, she said it needed cutting and I cut it and sent it back to her and she said, OK. But she died. Hmm. This was Helen Merrill, alas. Ah. So, so I sometimes think I made all the wrong decisions about – about it as it was it's of real interest it's i think but it's also probably not wonderful it's a first play and i did not keep writing plays i i didn't so but did the experience of writing the play in any way that you can articulate influence subsequently your work as an actor the opposite i think i felt that i was i knew a lot about a play being an actor Mm-hmm. I think it certainly helped me write a play. And then when it came to going back on it and, you know, cutting, rewriting, I never had that, oh, this is just too precious. I must keep it. I thought, oh, look, I can get rid of this. Whip, you know, mm-hmm. these pages I don't need, you know, and that was fun. Mm-hmm. So Fascinating. Now, jumping ahead again to a, a great role in a great production – you were not yet a Steppenwolf Company member, I believe. No. When you were asked to join the company in their production of The Grapes of Wrath. That's right. So it was presumably Frank Galati, who you mentioned earlier, yes. who asked you. Was yes. it an audition situation? An audition, yes. Mm-hmm. The show was so profoundly moving, mm. and you were such an icon in that show. I'm just wondering about the experience of going through that play. I mean, it's... It was a very big and powerful experience and really for all of us, it was a very bonding thing. And we had the 
amazing opportunity to do three productions of it, each one re-rehearsed and building on the one before. So that there was, we first did it at Steppenwolf in the uh, fall of 88 and worked on it all through the run or most through most of the run with huge changes. When that run ended, there was a lot of interest in it and it having a future, but we didn't know what was next. But we also knew at that point, Frank knew as the adapter and as the director, a lot of things that were yet to be altered and done. So it was something like nine months later that, well, along the way we were invited to be part of a uh, international festival that was being held in London. And in order to accept that, which we wanted to do, we had to put it up again because it was... So we did it. We opened the season at La Jolla. Which is where I saw the production. That's where you saw it. And that's where a lot of change was made. There There was textual change. The way the music was used was changed. Most of the cast was the same. There were some changes. One important one, Sally Murphy came in to play Rosa Sharn, and uh, that was wonderful. Um, and I remember the experience in La Jolla. This was a, a very collaborative thing. Frank is wonderful, and he was open to the to a point at which I think I will never fully understand. Gary, Sinise, Terry Kinney, and Jeff Perry were in this, and it was a, they were the three founders of Steppenwolf in the 70s, and they, I don't think, had been in a play together for ages. So he had a lot of powerhouses. There was a constant moving of, how are we going to do this? I don't think I've ever been involved in anything where I stories it would take hours to tell you about some of the things. that it was. I still remember it vividly as we tried things and tried other things and tried to make it work. And, of course, Frank was writing it and directing it, but he was marvelously open. He's really quite a remarkable director. Hmm. Um, at any rate, in La Jolla, we got to rehearse it all again. We rehearsed it in Chicago, actually, moved it out to La Jolla and uh, began it. And I remember I have a, a sort of sense that it, I think we had like a six, seven-week run there, something like that. And after a number of weeks, I felt we were like going – and then we – that's it. We got there. Well, you're but, showing me a hand sign yes. showing that you – we were, were either plateaued. We were, we, were, or, we were working, working, and then we, it's as though now we've got it together. Hmm. And that happened, and we went directly from there to London, where we, I think we were ready. Mm-hmm. And it was very successful in a, a short run in, in London. In this, uh, We were the first American company to play the National. Hmm. Um, since then, Steppenwolf has gone back, notably, to right. play again. Well, and then uh, we, there was interest in Broadway before that. But uh, after the London production, the Schuberts, who had the theaters and, and the money that were sufficient with other producers who were interested to bring it to Broadway. So, At what point were you asked to become a Steppenwolf member? It was in 93. We, did, uh, we started uh, Grapes of Wrath in uh, 88, and then we sp- – Actually, not. we spent two years at it, though not constantly. There was nine months between the first two productions, I think six months between the next two productions before. But by the time we finished in the Broadway run, it had been sort of two years. Actually, I did a play um, between each of those productions, too. I did Measure for Measure at Lincoln Center, after, and then I did a play at uh, Circle Rep. Uh, it was really a rich, wonderful time. Hmm. 
But what is being a company member at Steppenwolf meant for you? Because you're not Chicago-based. No, that's right. I'm not. And you're here in New York. So you're not always in the mix with everybody out there, yet you've certainly gone and done a number of plays. Yes. Mother Courage out there, the royal family out yes. there. Um, so what what does that mean for you as an artist to be to oh, part of that? Oh, it's been absolutely wonderful. I mean, I really – I feel that I fell in love when I met this company and my experience in Grapes of Wrath. Um, and uh, – I uh, I think I just hung around and went there as often as I could, and uh, and by then I I knew some of them very well and mm-hmm. was well thought of, and then was asked to be a company member, which was wonderful. When I became part of the company, which of course had started and was entirely Chicago based at first, but when we started Grapes of Wrath in Chicago, Gary Sinise, who played Tom, lived in L.A., and Terry Kinney, who played. Um, the preacher lived in New York. The, the rest of the company was, I believe, all Chicago at that point. But the company had already begun to disperse itself geographically. So that at one point, probably about the time I became a member or during the next maybe decade, I remember thinking at one time it was almost thirds, you know, East Coast, West Coast, and Chicago. Since then, the company has much once more become much more Chicago consolidated. Not that all, not that all the ensemble live there. There's still a lot of ensemble in, in LA and a lot in New York. But some people have moved back to Chicago and are more constantly part of the theater. I love it. I love to work there. Hmm. But I find it sometimes difficult to be away a long time. And so I, so I don't work there in a way as often as I'd like to, um, and sometimes I turn things down. And you ask what it means to me, it's hard to describe. It's mm. just delicious and meaningful. Well, I want to ask you about another Steppenwolf production, one which again played out there and played Broadway, namely Buried Child, Sam Shepard's play. <sighs> um, a very different piece of Americana yes. than Grapes of Wrath. Yes. Was Sam Shepard involved Very in that production? Very much. Yes, he was. So what was, again, the experience of having Sam Shepard – sort of the same question I asked you about Tony Kushner. It's a play that at that point Shepard had written a number of years earlier. It was not, not quite 20 years earlier. To have him in the room as you're working on – you know what's probably considered by most to be his masterwork. When uh, Gary and Sam, you know, decided to do this, Sam was interested in working on the play, so that he was with us a lot in Chicago and rewriting and present. It was very exciting. Gary, I thought, was when he asked me to do it, I was very pleased. I had seen the production in New York uh, years before, but it was again not a play I knew very well. And you think my golly, what am I going to do in this male play? It was so mm. – but it was very exciting. Um, and Gary was so fierce at the beginning that it was just I, – I don't know how to describe it. I sometimes say he's like a bulldog. He gets at something in his teeth and he is stubborn and he – and it was like, oh my god, what are we going to do? He's just so – and he's an actor, of course. So, mm. he, But I realized afterwards that – if he had not been – he had a vision of, of the dynamics of this play 
and he was going to impart it, and he did. And without that, I don't think we could ever have gotten where we got in as short a time, as tight a production with this. And then once that section was over, I no longer felt like I was like in a straitjacket because then afterwards, the actor in him, he would be grateful for what you brought. But Mm. at first it was like... It was one of the. It was a very interesting experience, and and I treasure it. I've never worked with Gary again as a director, but I'd love to. Um, mm. He's uh, pretty special. Again, it's funny. I'm picking on these plays that I think of as Americana. One of the most remarkable nights I ever spent in the theater was Trip to Bountiful <sighs> at Signature. I know it subsequently played out in Chicago as well. Such a deeply moving show, a piece that at that point was some 50 years old, Yes, um, playing the role of Carrie Watts, who really spends the play in despair, in despair of going home to a home that we all know isn't there anymore. Mm. What was the feeling of playing that night after night? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, I know what you're saying is true, but I had no sense of despair. Despair is not at all hmm. what I was. I wouldn't say not at all. I suppose, but th- th- that's not what I felt or feel. It was. Uh, oh, there was longing. There was longing, but there was also action. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel again, boy, do I feel fortunate. Horton's beautiful play, and beautiful Horton, Horton Foote, who was with us, who loved being in in the, the theater and at rehearsals, and was constantly there, and what a presence. But also, Harris Eulen directed it. Uh, the first time that Harris and I sat down to talk about it before. What he had, his vision of it was already exciting, and I think lent a lot to to what it to the production it became, which I think, though I couldn't see it, was indeed a beautiful production and beautifully realized. He had carried a, a present, and so in a way, what happened was it's this play starts. Oh, another thing, you know, this was written as a three act play in the fifties. We did it as a without an intermission in 90-some minutes because Horton realized we could do that partway through. She starts out in the apartment which she is stuck in with her daughter-in-law and her son and wants to get out. And then one of, I think, the most thrilling moments is uh, designed this way when she's going to leave the uh, apartment set pulls back and it turns in in front of you the large Houston bus station and uh, Carrie just steps into it and is on and uh, is on the trip so the trip Mm. to Bountiful uh, it's seamless and from the time that happens I guess that's why I argue with you when you say despair once she started on her trip it was not – I mean, yes, later as she gets there and is, is absolutely thwarted and they tell her she she cannot go and they're coming to get her. But she prevails. Hmm. 
So she prevails. That's mm, interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, I had a very personal reaction to the show. Oh, but people I won't, do, I won't and go so so do I. It, yeah. But you know, but it's uh, and I see what you mean. But on the other hand. I feel so lucky to have been able to do that and then the auspices in which I got to do it. Well, I feel so lucky to have seen you do it. It was it was quite extraordinary. You you said earlier on that interestingly, you have had more and more opportunities with film, with television. You keep doing theater. I mean, the number of shows you've done just in the past couple of years is extraordinary. Is there any temptation to say enough, I'm going to rest or do you just want to keep grabbing everything that comes at you? I, uh, no, not not everything that comes at me. <laughs> well, I often I say, this is if anything, this is my mantra. I say, I love to work and I love to stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't – I remember I was once in a film called uh, How to Make an American Quilt with a lot of wonderful women and there was a – a little press blurb once, and uh, Steven Spielberg, who produced it, said, "All these women, and Croft, and so on, they should be working all the time." And 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 he said, "I don't want to work all the time." <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, one gets tired, and then you, then I like to stop. But I love to work, and mm. I love to. And are there roles you'd still like the chance to play? Oh gosh. Again, as I told you earlier, I'm not I don't think I've ever been really good at at having that there. That one time the cherry orchard was one notable time when she asked me and I said, "Yes, I know what I want to do." and then got to do it. Hmm, no, I can't tell you. Hmm. But there will be more to come. Maybe so. Okay. Lois Smith, thank you so much for being with us today thank on you, Downstage Howard. Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we're a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening. And no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.